This year, I am focused on saving and investing, but I still want to do things like travel. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side-by-side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending, which means you could end up with a free flight or maybe a better hotel room. So what could future you do with smarter financial decisions? Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Do you want to set your child up for success? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. Well, I know with Eleanor, when she was struggling so much with math, if she had been able to do online learning at home, she would have been much better able to keep up with the class, and that would have just made the whole situation much easier for her. Don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And half your listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com happier. Visit IXL.com happier to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast about how to make our lives happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. This week, we'll talk about the question of whether you thrive in an environment with a sense of urgency, and we'll talk to Kim Scott and Trier Bryant about Kim's new book, Just Work, and the company they founded together, also called Just Work. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. And yes, once again, I am in my home office right here in New York City. And joining me today from L.A. is my sister, Elizabeth Kraft. That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A. And Gretchen, my home office is 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 falling into disarray. <laughs> it, it's, it needs you to come here in person and, and fix it. Well, you know, that is my favorite thing to yes. do. <laughs> um, and speaking of clutter and clearing clutter, we are still gathering your stories of clutter clearing triumph. If you have a terrific before and after or a story you want to share, send them to us at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Or you can post on social media with the hashtag outer order intercom or hashtag before and after. We are gathering these to give everybody inspiration for spring <laughs> cleaning. And thank you to everyone who answered the survey. Yes, that's a huge help, everyone. So thank you very much for doing that. So listen, this week our Try This at Home tip is ask yourself, do you thrive in an environment with a sense of urgency? Very interesting question. Yeah. Now, I got the idea from this because I was reading a really terrific memoir called Notes from a Young Black Chef by Chef Kwame Anwachi. And he has started and worked at all kinds of famous restaurants. He trained at the Culinary Institute of America. He's a former top chef contestant. He's had an extraordinary life. He's widely acknowledged as a star in this field, and he's not even 35 years old. And in the memoir, I was very struck, he describes his externship from the Culinary Institute of America at Per Se, which is this super fancy restaurant in New York City created by Thomas Keller, who is a very famous chef who established Per Se and French Laundry. So Nwaji explains that in all of Keller's restaurants, there's a plaque under the kitchen clock that says, 
sense of urgency. Mm, you know I love a plaque, Gretchen. Uh, you love a plaque. It's a fun job and I enjoy it. So I actually went online and I'll put, po- I'll put pictures in the show notes if you want to see this because you can see pictures of this. And I read an interview where Keller explained, a sense of urgency. It's something I ask my team to come to work with each day. And it goes beyond just making sure we are prepared and ready to serve. It's about speed, but it also means investing in what we do with importance. Great cooking is the accumulation of countless tiny tasks. Taken in isolation, these tasks might seem minimal, but each and every one of them is vital to the whole and performing them with urgency heightens their significance even more. And What's interesting is that it's clear that Kwame Anwachi thrives on a sense of urgency. He seems to love it. And he mentions that although he loves culinary school, he really misses the urgency of a restaurant. Mm. And I have to say, as I was reading this, I was like overwhelmed with like dread. I (laughs) could not live like this. Interesting. Yeah. And it made me think some people want to seek out a sense of urgency and people don't like a sense of urgency. How about you, Alyssa? Yeah, what do you have you to ask yourself. Yeah. Gretchen, I was thinking about this, and, you know, in my work, which is television writing, yeah. you kind of have to be able to thrive yeah. on a sense of urgency. I will say sometimes a sense of urgency can make me find it hard to think. Yes. You know, I get kind of panicked, but it is unavoidable. So what Sarah and I have realized is that we have to be able, when we're being creative, to ignore the sense of urgency. Ah. So we know it's there, but we have to set it aside and take the time we need to write or break a story or whatever it is, because you really just can't cut corners when it comes right. to storytelling. When you can't just like go faster. No, you're, yeah. you go as fast as you can. <laughs> I mean, you can not procrastinate, but aside yes. from that, that's all you can do. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, like, I think Jamie really likes a sense of urgency in his work. But right now, you know, but he works in infrastructure. And one thing, yes. like, if you're building a bridge or a tunnel, there's not urgency. And I think he really misses it. Whereas, like, I was talking to another friend who told me she dropped out of journalism school because she realized she hated deadlines so much. Mm. And so she really couldn't work with a sense of urgency. But listen, it sounds like, I, I mean, from what I've observed with you, it's almost like there's phases. Like, sometimes you have urgency and then sometimes you're not in a sense of urgency. So it's not, it's not constant. Yes. And I mean, that's actually one thing I really like about my job is that it's like always a journey. And so there's different yeah. phases of the journey. And sometimes, kind of like seasons of the year, maybe. Yes. And so I really like that because I, I wouldn't want to always be rushing in the sense of urgency, but I do enjoy the kind of adrenaline rush of it. So I like having those different phases. But Gretch, well, you absolutely hate it. I do not like, I, Thoreau has this line, I love a broad margin to my life. And I love a broad margin. <laughs> I like to do work early so that I know that I'm not up against a deadline. But I do like thinking about this. I realize there is kind of the danger of like, I don't want to start thinking of myself as like, I can't work with a sense of urgency because I don't want to limit my sense of possibilities for myself. Mm. Because maybe, like you, sometimes maybe I would like working with a certain sense of urgency. And so it's one of these things where you don't want to get too locked into a definition that you eliminate possibilities and opportunities. But on the other hand, you kind of want to recognize where you're like, what your comfort zone is, so that you're not ignoring your comfort zone or putting yourself in a place that's going to be really wildly uncomfortable for a long time. So I think it's an interesting thing to think about as you evaluate, you know, what you're doing and what might make it more or less appealing environment for you. 
Yeah, Gretchen, of course, we can't end this conversation without me mentioning that when you were in law school, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you stayed at school your first year and didn't come home for Thanksgiving so you could write um, your law and literature paper Yes, because you had to write three papers during law school and you wanted to get one done right away. Yes, and that was a very, very wise thing to do. So my desire to avoid a sense of urgency served me very well <laughs> um, in that case. So let us know how you feel about the sense of urgency, whether you like it or you don't like it, or you like a mix like Elizabeth. Let us know on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Or as always, you can go to happiercast.com slash 317, because this is episode 317. Coming up, we've got a happiness hack about how to drink less. But first, this break. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Elizabeth, I got the Flow Knit Wide Leg Pant. It's very light. It's perfect for the summer. It packs very easily. I recently went on a trip with my family, and I took it with me, and they were just the thing to wear on a really hot day where I wanted to be covered up, but I wanted something that looked great and also was very comfortable. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash Gretchen for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Gretchen to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Gretchen. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. And, you know, Elizabeth, I now work with a team and hiring the right people is so important. It's maybe the most important thing. And LinkedIn makes the process of identifying and hiring people easy and intuitive. I know that when I've been hiring for my team, it's hard to find quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn isn't just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Gretchen. That's linkedin.com slash Gretchen to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now for a happiness hack. Yes, Gretchen, this hack comes from Carrie. She says, for your listeners who have ended dry January and fallen back into old habits or maybe skipped dry January, I did. I'm writing to share a happiness hack designed to reduce how much you drink. By way of background, I'm a full-time lawyer, partnered with an amazing husband and raising two kids in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I've always enjoyed a glass or two of white wine after work, something that I started to investigate when I answered the following Know Yourself Better question from Gretchen's Happiness Project course. What do you lie about? Gulp, the obvious answer, how much I drink. I don't even give my doctor a true account. 
So I started cutting my evening white wine with seltzer. This gave me the familiarity and comfort of glass in hand as I moved through evening routines, but I began to suspect that I wasn't really cutting back. I was just giving myself permission to have four spritzers instead of two or three glasses of wine. So I decided to try two of Gretchen's strategies for habit formation, one monitoring and two convenience or lack thereof. I inadvertently also ended up giving myself three a treat, more on that in a minute, and four lucking into a lightning bolt. First, I decided I really needed to measure how much wine I had every evening. I began by pouring four ounces of wine into a Pyrex measuring cup and then adding that to my glass and topping it off with seltzer. Next day, I realized I was perfectly happy with two ounces plus enough seltzer to have the look and feel of a full wine glass. For the first few days, I would have my two spritzers, two ounces each, and then refill the measuring cup with another four ounces. And then, lightning bolt, I didn't want to pour that second Pyrex with four ounces of wine. The first four ounces was plenty. When I stopped for just a second to think about whether I wanted a refill, my inner voice said, no, you've had enough, have just seltzer and see if you want more wine later, and I almost never do. Adding this small friction inconvenience to the act of monitoring made me focus on how I felt in the moment, good, satisfied, and gave me a beat to consider my future self. How will I feel tomorrow if I have more? Typically not my best. Critical to this whole process is that I never tell myself I cannot have more. If it's a Friday or I'm talking with a dear friend and I want another four ounces, I just pour it. No self-recrimination, no commitment to abstain. But this is now a rare occurrence, not an autopilot routine. And to the treat, I got sick of using a measuring cup, which reminds me of cooking, not my fave, and feels utilitarian. So I bought myself a pair of four-ounce measuring cups. They're meant for cream, but I love their beaker-like design and clean lines. And she sent a picture of a very pretty measuring cup. She says, I really hope this hack inspires other listeners who experience some level of unease about their evening alcohol consumption, but have no interest in cutting out alcohol altogether. And she says, I know all this makes me sound like a questioner, but trust me, I'm an obliger through and through. (laughs) Well, this this is a brilliant combination of so many strategies and approaches. She's using her tendency, inconvenience, monitoring, lightning bolt. It's great that she found a way to master this habit in a way that really works for her by really, you know, figuring out herself and how to tailor it to herself. That's terrific. And now it's time for an interview with Kim Scott and Trier Bryant of Just Work. Now, Kim is a very old friend. We go way back to our days at the Federal Communications Commission. Kim is the author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity, and the co-founder of the company Radical Candor. Before that, she led teams at AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick, and she was a member of the faculty at Apple University. She was a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and other tech companies, and she's also managed a pediatric clinic in Kosovo and started a diamond-cutting factory in Moscow. And now she has a new book, Just Work, Get Stuff Done Fast and Fair. It's about how we can recognize, attack, and eliminate workplace injustice and transform our careers and organizations in the process. Trier Bryant is the CEO of Just Work, the company that she and Kim Scott have co-founded to put the ideas in the book into practice. Trier Bryant was an officer in the U.S. Air Force and a leader at Goldman Sachs, Twitter, and Astra. 
She also founded a DE&I consulting firm, Pathfinder. Hello, Kim and Trier. Hi. Hey, Hello. Gretchen. Hey. So we're so eager to jump into a discussion um, of this subject. Now, Kim, what inspired you to write this book and then Kim and Trier to start this company together, Just Work? <laughs> So I think I decided to start writing this book after, shortly, if you write a book about feedback, as Radical Keener was, you're <laughs> going to get a lot of it. And mm. so I was giving a presentation in, in San Francisco to a tech company, and the CEO of that company was a colleague of mine, a former colleague of mine, and one of two few black women CEOs in tech. And after I gave the presentation, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I'm excited about rolling Radical Candor out on the team. I think it's going to help me build the culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to roll it out than it is for you. And it's probably harder for you than it is for your husband, who's a white engineer in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And she said, as soon as I go in and I offer even the gentlest, most compassionate criticism I get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And it sort of, it made me realize a bunch of things all at the same time. One was that I had not been the kind of colleague for her that I thought of myself as. I hadn't been an upstander. I hadn't ever noticed really even the toll that it must have taken on her to seem always pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> and, mm. uh, and, you know, believe me, in that decade plus that I had known her, she had what to be pissed off about. But mm. I had never seen her <laughs> seem even the tiniest bit annoyed. Uh, and But then, you hadn't realized, you sort of hadn't registered what an effort that must have been. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's probably a form of denial, frankly. And it also made me realize the extent to which I had been in denial about the things that had happened, not only to her, but to me, myself. Uh, the, the extent to which gender had played a role in my career. And, uh, and, and so that was, that, I sort of decided that was something I really needed to think about. And, and hence, I started writing Just Work. And then you realized, oh, it needs to be a company, which makes a lot of sense. What was that sort of, how did that come about? Well, you know, with Kim, what she had learned from Radical Candor is that, unfortunately, reading a book doesn't just change everyone's behavior, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. How we, we wish, wish that were true. <laughs> yes. Sometimes you need a little bit more reinforcement, right, to get that discipline and ask yeah. questions and to dig deeper into what a book can offer. So with Radical Candor, which I was a fan of, Kim Scott, and that framework with my military background, I believe if you don't have Radical Candor in your leadership toolkit, it should be there. And so when I got Just Work, as Oprah says, I had this aha moment, mm -hmm. and it really forced me to sharpen my own perspective on my experiences across the military, Wall Street, tech, and mm. what I had seen, what I had experienced, and then also what I had done as a leader. So for mm. example, one of the things is when we talk about the root causes of uh, workplace injustice and we say bias, prejudice, and bullying, yes. bias, not meaning it, prejudice, meaning it, and then bullying, just being mean. If you were to ask me, <laughs> Gretchen and Elizabeth, if, like, if I'd ever been bullied in my career, I'd be like, have you met me? Have you worked with me? Like, of course <laughs> I haven't, right? Like, you come for me, I'm going to come back. And then you have this different lens to look through it. And it's like, wow, I really have been bullied a lot in my career, but I've 
never stood up for myself and I've never been able to name it in that way. Ah, well, and I like how you have a chapter that's like how to stand up for yourself without blowing up your career, which is, yeah, I think what everybody wants, you know, doesn't want to blow up their career. And I mean, I work in Hollywood, so there's a lot yeah. of this is relevant here as well. Very relevant in Hollywood. So what, when you say bias and prejudice, meaning it, not meaning it, explain that a little bit more for people who, who might not instantly understand that distinction, because it seems like a really important distinction. Yeah. So um, I'll give you an example. I was on my way to work when I was at Twitter and I was getting in the Uber and like most Uber drivers turn around and said, hey, like, where are you headed? And I said, oh, I'm going downtown to work to Twitter on um, Market Street. And the Uber driver says, oh, I didn't know that Twitter had a call center downtown. And so that's an example of bias, right? Like he didn't mean that, but he just assumed a black woman working at Twitter that I must work at a call center. So it was an opportunity to let him know, actually, I know I'm a leader on the people team and I run most of the talent acquisition organizations, right? Um, So that would be an example of bias where he didn't mean that harm that came from that. Um, However, prejudice would be an example of I was, we were interviewing for a new recruiting leader at a different organization that I was working at. And a black woman came in and interviewed and she interviewed with her natural hair. Fast forward to the end when we had the opportunity to debrief, the hiring manager said, oh, I'm not quite sure we're going to be able to hire her because we're not going to be able to put her in front of the business. And she was by far the top candidate. Everyone across the board thought she was exceptional. And so prejudice now, because the hiring manager had that power, this prejudice because she meant it, right? Like she believed that a Uh, black woman wearing her natural hair could not be put in front of the business. And because she had that power as a hiring manager, that woman ultimately didn't get the job. mm -hmm. And so now that's where that prejudice turns into discrimination Uh, and discrimination of, you know, against this woman because of how she wore her hair. Believe me, not, I'm just guessing, but I'm, but I'm, pretty sure I'm right, that nowhere in the job description did it say anything about hair. Right. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't. So I think I think the, dis- the distinction is, like, so, at least for me in the course of my career, I always hope that people don't really mean it when they say something that is offensive. But sometimes they really do mean it. They'll dig in. So, for example, I was chit-chatting with a guy before a meeting, and he said to me, oh, my wife doesn't work because it's better for the children. And I didn't think he really was dug in. So I tried to give him an out by making a joke. And I was like, oh, I decided to show up at work today because I wanted to neglect my children. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm expecting him to sort of back on. But no, he digs in. He's like, oh, Kim, I have these studies. It's really not good for you that you're that you're working. And so now all of a sudden, mm-hmm. I ha- it's not good for your family. So now all of a sudden, I have a choice in how to respond. I, I can't just make a joke of it. I can't just hold up a mirror. Like if it's bias, you can, you can use sort of an I statement. I don't think, and invite the person in to understand things from your perspective. But with, right. with prejudice, you really need to, you really need to draw a line in the sand between what someone else can believe. They can believe whatever they want, but they can't impose their beliefs on you. So in this case, I worked for a company that had really clear code of conduct. And I said, look, it is a violation. It is an HR violation for you to tell me that I'm neglecting my kids for showing up at work. And I knew that the organization had my back. And that was really important. Yeah. Well, that's one thing you talk about is being an upstander. So I know this is just a gigantic, huge subject and very complicated. That's what I think most people want 
Yeah. What is an upstander and how do we be one? Yes. So what could I have done if I had been Trier's colleague in that hiring meeting to be the upstander? So Trier doesn't have to push back. What I could have done is I I could have used the it statement. Either it is illegal to discriminate against someone because of their hair. You can appeal to the law. Or uh, it is nowhere written in the job description anything about hair. Or I could appeal, so sort of appealing to the processes, the, the corporate processes. Or I could just appeal to common human sense, to common human decency and basic common sense, which is it is ridiculous not to hire someone because of their hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are examples of an, of an it statement that an upstander could use. So the difference between a bystander and an upstander is, an, is a bystander just stands by and observes injustice. And, and when we do that, which we all do, I certainly have done it too many times in my life. That was sort of what I realized when I was giving the radical candor presentation was that I had been a bystander in, uh, in the case of my black colleague. I had not realized the extent to which she was experiencing bias at the very least in, in the organization. And obviously what's hard is if you're below the person, like the woman who's making the hair comment, if you're far below her, it is harder to be an upstander than if you are a, a peer, right, on her on her level. So, I mean, how if you are much lower level, how do you voice that? The same way? Yeah, and absolutely. And I think the, the, another distinction is that being an upstander is not standing up for the person who's being who's um, receiving the harm. It's about standing up to the bias, to the prejudice, to the bullying. So it's not this like savior complex, like I have to rescue a person. Mm. It is, you know, having that courage to stand up to the workplace injustice, right? And even if the person who's being harmed you know, respond or stand up for themselves, it's okay. And a upstander should still feel empowered to say something as well, to reinforce that that workplace injustice is inappropriate and to name it so that everyone understands the situation and then to change that behavior. But Elizabeth, you're you're exactly right. Power makes this much harder. And so we don't want to... Upstanders are very valuable and uh, very valuable allies in, in this, and we don't want to put them in harm's way. So one of the things that Trier and I talk about are the things you can do. Yes, sometimes you can have a direct confrontation in the moment with that person who's more powerful than you. And more often than not, they actually will be open to it. But if you don't feel like that is safe in the moment, one of the things you can do is just go to the person who is harmed by the behavior and and talk to them and say, what can I do to support you? Uh, I'll give you a simple example of a time when when that didn't happen for me and it was a big deal. So I was giving a presentation and 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 the guy who to whose team I was I was talking to leadership about uh, gra- instead of shaking my hand as he had done with the other men on stage, he grabbed my hand and he kissed it and he like kind of slobbered on it, you know, <laughs> it's like one of those yeah. cringe moments. Yeah. And, uh, and everybody, and there, we were in front of 500 people, everybody saw that that was weird and nobody came up afterwards to me and said anything. Ah. And so when I saw something happen, there was, there was a woman on another team that I worked who called out some guy on the team for his rock star thighs, which was kind of the same 
same thing in reverse. Mm -hmm. And I talked, I, I did not feel comfortable or safe. It did not feel safe to confront her in the moment in public. But I did go up to the guy afterwards and say, that was weird. I'm really sorry. And he was like, thank you for saying something. I was wondering if I was the only one who felt that way. So even just pulling the person aside later and saying that that seemed weird to me. Are you okay? Is a big deal. Well, one thing I really admire about the book, and I'm sure this is going to be true for the for the company that you're that you two are launching, is it's complex. These things are kind of like easy to like make up an imaginary workplace, but when you get into the complications of personalities and hierarchy, and in the moment not knowing what to do, kind of freezing and only realizing later, like, wait, what just happened? And what should I have done? And and I feel like you really get into the complexity of it in a way that's really helpful. And there's so many examples of things that happen that, like, Trey, you were like, oh, I've never been bullied. And then you're like, wait a minute. Yes, I have. Yeah. Now that you, like, <laughs> give me a couple of examples, I think sometimes we don't even recognize the situation until somebody says, hey, look at this. Does this ring a bell? And then all of a sudden you're like, well, actually, maybe I did gloss over that in the moment and I didn't understand how that could seem or what's really happening there or what I should do or in the future if I didn't do it this time. Yeah, I think that that's Kim's superpower, right? Um, and I think that that's what she does so well is she takes these things that we've all experienced. We kind of have, have, you know, we can kind of point to theoretically, but it's like, what's really happening? And she gives these simple practical frameworks that we can, you know, add to our toolkits as individuals and as organizations to do better. And to your point, you know, one of the things that Kim and I talk about is ending the default to silence, right? Mm. Because we don't know what to do because yes. we get stuck. And it's like, oh no, I don't know what to say or what to do. And then afterwards, all of these things come to you. Like I should yes. respond like this way. Yes. I could have done this. And so by sharing each other's stories, right? Our, the more stories that we hear, I mean, Kim's stories bring the framework to life. And then when you hear us talk about it and then my stories, and then like on our website, you can share your own stories. And yes. so mm. it really just illuminates the framework and shows how, how powerful thinking, you know, having this lens. Now, look, is this framework going to just totally eradicate workplace injustices from the workplace? No, but is it, <laughs> is it a tool to help us do better and to do the work? Yes, and there are, and I hope this inspires others to create more frameworks. We need more things like this in this space that we can, that we can learn and gravitate to, to do the work that we need to do to, you know, so that we can all just, just work. Well, it's interesting because one of the points that you make is that it's just to have a just workplace. It's the right thing to do, but it's also good for business to have a just workplace. So talk a little bit about that because maybe there's some people who will like, Respond you know, that'll be to persuasive that. to them. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I, I'm going to answer by telling stories because I like to tell stories. Uh, tr it's one of the reasons why I think Trier and I are a great team is that she's got the deep expertise in DE&I experience where she can really figure out what works and what doesn't work. In some ways, it's like I'm describing root canals that I've had, uh, <laughs> but she's actually a dentist, right? <laughs> so, so anyway, here's me, me describing not a root canal, but a time when things worked out. So this friend of mine, Aileen Lee, who's a venture capitalist, was at a meeting with two partners, Steve, uh, we'll call him Steve and Sam, and they, they walked in, they sat down at the table, and then the people they were meeting with filed in, and they all started sitting on the other side of the table, leaving Aileen sort of by herself with no one across from her. And 
as the meeting started up, they were all ignoring Aileen. She would say something, and it was though she had not spoken, and they would turn to her mm-hmm. her two colleagues. Mm-hmm. And this happens. This is the kind of thing that happens all the time. Uh, we've all been there. And one of Aileen's two partners realized what was happening. And he cared about it on two levels. He cared about it because he he liked Aileen and he thought she was not being treated right. But he also cared about it because they were not going to get the deal if these guys didn't listen to Aileen because she actually had the expertise in the mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. so he stood up and he said, Aileen, why don't you and I switch places so they can hear you better? And then all of a sudden, everybody in the room realized what they were doing, and they stopped doing it. And so that was an example of a very simple, what what Trier and I call a bias interruption. Mm -hmm. And so what Trier is so good at is figuring out how can we create the kinds of interventions? How can we teach leaders so that this kind of stuff happens routinely and not just occasionally. But And that's a great example of like, if you'd never heard of that, it might not have occurred to you. But if it, you knew about it, you might very simply and easily address the situation right, right then and there and move on. But you sort of have to have either the imagination or the instruction on what the tools are or like what the possibilities are. Yes, right. Yes, and awareness is not enough, unfortunately. Right. That, that's the problem of unconscious bias training. You need tools. Yeah. And for people who sincerely want to make their workplaces more just, do you have like the, your top suggestions of what to do just sort of that they can implement today? Yeah, I, I think the number one thing is to be able to name it, right? Mm-hmm. So again, when, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, the originator of intersectionality, she says, if you can't name it, then you can't solve for it, right? And so a lot of these things, like if you don't know that that's bias or you don't know that it's happening, then you don't know what you're solving for and what behaviors or attitudes need to change. So let's first just name it and then let's get very specific and tactical about what to do about it. Um, and that's another area where in the DEI space, like we just need to move past like talking about the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're we're over the panels of let's talk about it. We know that there's an issue, but what can we really do about it? And, and so what is so powerful about the framework is that not only is it helping you to name it, but it's also giving you solutions, tactical Mm -hmm. solutions of what to do, regardless of what role you play. So if you're the person harmed, here are statements that you can say so that you don't default to silence. If you choose not to respond, that's your choice. But if you're going to default to silence, default there because that's your choice, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a, we want you to be an upstander, not a bystander, how do you do that? If you're a person who's causing the harm, you need to listen. You need to listen and understand what's going on. And then if you're a leader, it is your job and responsibility to prevent these situations from occurring. But if they do, and we know that they will, then how do you how do you ensure that they don't happen again? And again, how do you disrupt that bias and that prejudice so that, um, you know, it doesn't continue on? So, for example, with the hair story, that organization you know, I went to a leader and we said, hey, this is not okay. And so Mm -hmm. we rolled out training to the recruiting teams. We educated people and that hiring manager, right, was talked to and counseled to understand why that was inappropriate. I'm very, I feel very strongly that at that company, that has not happened again, right? Uh It's unfortunate that it happened once, but what do you do so that, because there are things that you can do to disrupt that behavior, those behaviors and those attitudes. But oftentimes we we don't call it out. We don't follow up and, and we don't put those things in place. Well, that's what I think is so great is that this is really focused on, okay, let's let's recognize it and let's address it. It's about, you know, making change, fixing it. 
And giving lo- everybody lots of tools, you know, no, no matter how they fit into an organization um, about how to do that. Okay, so switching gears, we cannot let you leave um, the, this interview without asking you if you have a quick try this at home suggestion for our listeners related to just work or, or just drink more water, whatever you want. <laughs> so here's my try this at home. Trier just talked about ending the default to silence. So when you have a moment at work where someone says something that is so offensive that it leaves you gobsmacked, that you don't know what to say, here's my advice for what to say. If you think it's bias, use an I statement. I don't think you meant that the way it sounded. Just Uh, start with the word I, even if you don't know what you're going to say next, and see what comes out of your mouth. And the the idea here is you're inviting someone in to, to understand things from your perspective. But if you think it is prejudice, use that it statement. It is ridiculous or it is illegal. And if you think it's bullying, use a you statement. You can't talk to me like that. Ah, My ah. daughter actually explained to me the value of the you statement. She was getting bullied on the playground and I was advising her to use an I statement. I feel sad when you, and she said, mom, he is trying to make me sad. Telling him he succeeded (laughs) is like giving him a cookie. Why would I do that? I'm like, you are right. This is... Words to live by. So so push the person away with a use statement. Okay. Excellent. Trier. Okay. So try this at home. I got a Peloton recently and I'm obsessed. Oh. <laughs> I'm really obsessed. And but it's not just because, yes, it's good to get on the bike and exercise, but Shout out to those Peloton instructors. They, yes. I feel like they are all my new best friends. And they have this eerie timing when they're like talking to you. And they're like, no, you, head up. No, you, get back in the seat. Like, you can do this. Like, right at the, and I, I have the thing. So I know they don't see me on the camera. But um, so I think try at home is just, whether it's from Peloton instructors on a screen or your family, your friends or whatever, I especially think that in this climate, just make sure that you have people that are motivating you, mm-hmm. that are uplifting you and, you know, just replenishing what the world is taking so much from us right now. But how do you replenish that? And mm-hmm. for me, I am just so uplifted and inspired by people's words when I don't ask for them, right? Mm-hmm. Like just someone just un- with no invitation, just reminding you like how how much of a badass you are, right? And so right now I'm getting that a lot from my Peloton instructor. So shout out to them. <laughs> Excellent. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much. Thank it's been so both. terrific to talk to both of you. Thank you all so much. Tons yeah, of fun. Yeah, thank you for having us. Coming up, I give a gold star to one of my all-time favorite reality shows. But first, this break. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth... I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. 
So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Gretch, I love eating sandwiches like a grilled cheese or a peanut butter sandwich is my ideal lunch, but I'm very aware of my carb intake, so oftentimes I avoid sandwiches. Luckily, Hero Bread has remade carby, empty-calorie bread products into fluffy, delicious versions that include no net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and fewer calories, plus it has protein and fiber. I have been using it to make grilled cheeses, and I use their tortillas to make a cheese quesadilla, and I am in heaven. Hero Bread tastes great, has a terrific texture, and helps you meet your nutrition goals. Don't give up being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use happier at checkout. That's happier at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Okay, Gretch, it's time for demerits and gold stars, and you are up this week with a happiness demerit. Yes, this is a book management demerit. (laughs) So I am researching and writing this book about the five senses, and I check out many, many books from the library, but I also buy a lot of books. And I have not been properly shelving any of my five senses books. I have a whole area that's my like happiness and good habits area, and I manage that very well, and it's all alphabetized. And I... A while back, a long time ago, I cleared off a bunch of shelves thinking, okay, this is where I'm going to put my five senses books. But it's like one of these things where they're not alphabetized. And then I'm like, is this enough shelf space? Do I need more shelf space? Because I don't want to like fill it up and then realize that I don't have enough. But then I also don't want to, I, I, but if I need more shelves, like what do I do with the books that are on those shelves now? Because we don't have empty shelves lying around. And then also, I don't want to give too much shelves to these five senses books. So I just am like paralyzed. And so Hmm. I have a whole area that just has these empty shelves that looks very ugly. And then I have just piles of five senses books, um, like in three places all over my apartment. And I just have been living like that for months and I need to deal with it. Yeah, Gretchen, it seems like you could at least line them up in alphabetical order and then see how much space you need. Well, that's a good idea. I could just like measure them literally and be like, how long? Yeah. Okay. Well, I can start there, pull them all out, and just put them into alphabetical order. That that feels that feels doable. Okay, yeah. uh, I will report back. How about you, Elizabeth? Gold star. Okay, well, you know I love reality TV, and really the first ever reality TV show was The Real World season one in New York, mm-hmm. um, and it, it happened when I was living in New York. In fact, my friend Karen was almost one of the castmates. Wow, she just, got, she just didn't make the cut. Anyway, so out, so this was um, 30 years ago, season one of The Real World debuted. And now, 30 years later, they're having a reunion. All the mm. housemates went back to the same loft for, I think, six nights and had a reunion. And it is on Paramount+. Plus. Wow. And I just love it because, you know, I love seeing these people who I saw when they were so young. Now they're all adults and have kids and lives. And it's also interesting because it took place during COVID. Ah. So they all had to quarantine. One of them 
ended up having COVID. So he just like pipes in on a screen, <laughs> um, which is kind of sad. Um, but they show clips of the of the their oh. season against oh. what's happening now. Oh. It's just fascinating. That I love that. I'm gonna watch that even though I never watched the first one. That sounds fascinating. Yes, it's called the Real World Homecoming, and it's on right. Paramount Plus. And the resources for this week, as we often say, it's surprisingly hard to know yourself. Um, and so, as part of their spotlight on mental health this month, I have teamed up with. M.M. LaFleur to offer a 21-day challenge aimed at helping you get to know yourself a bit better. And to sign up, you can go to mmlafleur.com slash Gretchen hyphen Ruben hyphen email hyphen challenge, or I will put the link in the show notes. This is episode 317. Um, and then for three weeks, I will send you an email with a question or a series of questions meant to help you gain insight into yourself. That's free. And speaking of clutter clearing, which we've mentioned a few times, if you want more Outer Order in your life, you can check out my Outer Order Inner Calm 30-Day SMS Challenge, where for 30 days, you get a text to help you declutter your life and make more room for happiness. You can click the link in the show notes to join or visit uh, GretchenRubin.com slash SMS. Now, listen, what we're reading, what are you reading? I am reading Sunshine Girl, which is an upcoming book by Juliana Margulies. How about you? And I am reading Memorial Drive by Natasha Trethaway. Love that title. And that is it for this episode of Happier. Remember to try this at home. Ask yourself whether you thrive in an environment with a sense of urgency. Let us know. Thanks to our terrific guests, Kim Scott and Trier Bryant. You can check out Kim's new book, Just Work, and the name of their new company is also Just Work. Thanks to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, and everyone at Cadence 13. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Twitter at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Elizabeth Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. And if you like the show, we've said it before, we'll say it again. Please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us, rate us, review us, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Till next week, I'm Elizabeth Craft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and upward. So, Kim, I know you're a rebel because I've known you for a long time. I know you're a rebel. But, Trier, do you know your tendency? I am a rebel as well. I'm not surprised, though. And I don't think Kim is either. <laughs> yeah, I was going to peg you as a rebel. Although, well, although as a true rebel, you would rebel against those Peloton instructors. <laughs> wow. So, two rebels starting a company. Yeah, Gretchen, I think you have some advice for us because it's hard for rebels to work together. And yet we seem to be doing it. They can do whatever they want to do. Yeah. From the Onward Project. I don't know about you, but I'm always looking for ways for my son to get involved and give back in our local community. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Student Visionaries of the Year, a campaign by Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, the largest nonprofit organization dedicated to creating a world without blood cancers. 
Student Visionaries of the Year is a seven-week philanthropic leadership development program for high school students. Participants form strong teams and fundraise in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor in their local community. This program is transformative. It not only helps students develop valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship, not to mention it looks great on college applications, but most importantly, is also a chance for them to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on blood cancer patients and their families. You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students.